Last week we talked about Gideon being chosen. This week we're going to talk about how he won a particular battle, and it's the craziest thing you've ever heard. And so let me begin with this. In the armed forces, there are special units, kind of the elite of the elite. Can you name any of those? Just real quick off the top of your head. Seals. Rangers. Green Berets. Good, you're doing good. Delta Force. Who? Space Force. I'm not sure they're elite, but I like that. Uh, the Marines have somebody called the Raiders. Uh, the Air Force has a para-rescue group called the PJs, which doesn't sound very ominous, but I'm sure they're bad boys. Um, to get into one... All right, so there are 1.3 million Americans in active duty service. 1.3 million. We have 334 million people in America. So that, if you're doing statistics, that's about four-tenths of 1% of people are in the military. So it's already an elite group. Of that four-tenths of 1%, 1% of those folks make it into an elite, one of these elite groups. Now, they, uh, they test, they challenge, they go through these struggles in order to make it to the elite group. Their ambition through all this process is to eliminate as many people as possible. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, God never puts us in a position to fail. Well, these guys put these other people in positions to fail because it's going to to be the elite of the elite, and they they run obstacle courses, and they have to swim distances, and they 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 run, and they do all the ups, you know, pull ups, and sit ups, and push ups, which would cause me to do the fourth up, throw ups, and so you know, lots of ups. So these guys are in tip top shape, and the idea is they're going to weed out the people so that they have the elite of the elite. And for us, that's incredibly logical because it's like, okay, if I'm going to send forces in at first, I want the elite of the elite. Or if I need somebody rescued, I I don't want to send me in there. Uh, I want to send somebody that's super duper trained. You know, I want to send, you know, uh, Jack Reacher, you know, Jason Bourne. I want to send somebody like that into the throes of danger. And so it makes a ton of sense that we want a team of elite, elite people. Now, we're in this series, and and if you're new, the series is called Fuzzy Math. Oh, I I missed my little mark here. Fuzzy Math. When what God does doesn't add up. So God chose this guy named Gideon to be the leader of an elite force. We would choose Jean-Claude Van Damme, the muscles from Brussels, God chose Barney Fife. It's like he, in fact, Gideon said, I am the least in my family, which is in the least tribe. I am the runtiest of the runts. And that's the one that God chose to be the leader of this elite force. You'll recall that there was this, this, You have Israel, and they've sinned against God, and the Midianites come in, this Midianite army of 135,000. They come in, and they begin to raid, and they take all of their crops. We, most of us in this room, don't really understand hunger. 
for me, hunger is like 1130, I'm ready for lunch. You know, if you live hand to mouth and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you really know what the struggle for hunger is. Well, these people lived hand to mouth. And so if a raiding army comes in and they take all of your food, it is a, the direst of situations. It's life and death. And so this army of 135,000 now all of a sudden are taking all of their stuff. So God raises up a judge. His name is Gideon. And Gideon is going to lead an elite troop to defeat the Midianites. That's the notion. Now, you'll recall that Gideon was a little bit reluctant. In fact, he was like, I don't really want to do this. And then he has this challenge to God. Hey, I'm going to lay out a fleece. And, and, and God answers all of his prayers. And so Gideon now, he's, he's all in. So that's where we pick up the story in Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. Remember the spring of Herod. We're going to come back in a second. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now what's the first question you come up with when you hear God say, you have too many men? What's the question you come up with? How many is too many? Right? So the other people have 135,000. How many is too many? It's a great question, I think. Um, so they have 32,000. Here, going into the story, you've got an army of 132,000 versus an army of 32,000, which is you're already at a disadvantage of four to one. Okay. So let's learn some lessons that God will teach us through the life of Gideon. We're going to look at four things today. And this first one is so important to learn in, in our lives. I mean, it's one of the most important lessons that we'll ever learn about how God deals with his people. And that is this, that sometimes the Lord weakens us to make us stronger in Judges 7-2, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. And they would say, my own strength has saved me. And the idea is this, God goes out of his way to keep his people from sinning. And he knows, he, knows, he knows men and he knows a man's pride. And at four to one, if I win, I'm just going to say I am a bad, bad dude. I, I, took, care, I took on four of them. In fact, this chump beside me only got three. I'm five to one. I'm a, I'm a five to one kind of guy. And, and, I, and I'm going to be proud. All right, and so in Scripture, often you'll see God weakening someone in order to make them stronger. It is a super interesting concept. Again, it doesn't add up because I want to be strong and I want to be healthy and I want to be well and I want to be wise, and it just, it just doesn't always work out that way. Now, there's a guy in the New Testament named Paul. He writes... <laughs> several books in the New Testament, nearly half. He is a prolific writer. He is a church planter. He is a theologian. I mean, he, he is a super follower. He, he may be the greatest Christian who ever walked the planet. This guy is top shelf. And one would suspect if Paul wanted something, asked for something in prayer, he would get it. Except he doesn't always get it. And he mentions this thing he calls a thorn in the flesh. And he says about it this. 
three different times, I begged. It wasn't like a, a subtle asking. When you beg for something, you are you are broken. Three separate times, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time, God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And there's this debate around what was this thorn in the flesh. Some people believe it was temptation. Some people believe he had chronic eye problems. Uh, Some people believe he had migraines that were brought on because he had had malaria. Some think it was epilepsy. Others conjecture that it might be a speech impediment. Still others think it might have been a person. Like there was a guy he mentions one time, Alexander the coppersmith. If you're going to make it into the Bible, don't be negative. And Alexander the coppersmith, Paul says, he gives me a lot of trouble. This guy is a troublemaker. And I don't know, let's just do a real quick survey. How many of you have ever had a thorn in your flesh that you wanted God to take away? Just show of hands. How many of you are sitting by? Well, no, uh, no, 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 no. Wrong question. Um, Sometimes what God does just doesn't add up. And as the great theologian Kelly Clarkson once said... What doesn't kill you, what? Makes you, st- makes you strong. Yes. We all know it. Y'all know it. So here you have Paul. He has this thorn in the flesh. He begs God to take it away. Three different times. He begs God to take it away. And God says, my power works best. In weakness, my grace is enough. And so Paul concludes... So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. And I'm going to venture to guess that's probably not many of us. I mean, that's next level maturity. I boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. For when I am weak, if I was writing this, I would say when I am weak, I am weak and miserable and annoying and mad. Uh, Not Paul. When I'm weak... Then I'm strong. I I read this really interesting book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell the other day called Outliers. And in it he talks about, he's talking about people who do exceptional things and how they get there. And one of the things he talks about, and one of the guys he talks about is a dude by the name of Dr. Julius Wagner Jorgen, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in the early 1900s. This doctor began to experiment. What he noticed was there are people with a certain disease, and when they got the disease, if they had had a high fever, that the disease was cured more more often than not. And he started to deduce, or he deduced, that maybe fever was the thing that would trigger a recovery from this particular disease. And so he, he started injecting people with malaria. Pretty sure you can't do that today. Uh, this is pre-penicillin, okay? So he started, he started injecting people with malaria so they would get a fever. And if they didn't die from that, they were, they were cured. And it's really interesting. I read another article about this, that fever actually, when I get a fever, when you get a fever, what do you, I mean, what do you do immediately? Try to get rid of it, right? We hate it. I hate a fever. 
Well, fevers are actually, not always, but a fever, it can be an indicator. Uh, It can be a, a trigger that causes your body to begin to fight infection. And it actually could be something that is good for us. We run from pain. We avoid discomfort with everything we have. And yet, it's often through our discomfort that God heals us. Let's go back. Paul said, my power, God says to Paul, my power works best in weakness. And so God is about to challenge Gideon by saying, dude, you've got too many people. Now, I'm Gideon, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, it's four to one right now, and I'm on the negative of that. Um, it, would you do this? Because this first thing I would think of is, all right, how many, how many to one would it take for me to be like, really, I, I can't do it? What would it take? Ten to one? Would ten to one be so much that I can't win? Uh, or what about, I mean, would it like 15 to one? Can I do 15 to one? Is that how you would think? Because that's how I would think. I, I'm just thinking, okay, logically, 15 to one is too much. Don't you think? I think 15 to 1, I mean, t- maybe 10 to 1. So I would be thinking to myself, okay, 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 okay. I, I, I get that God is going to weed us out. I get it. But how much weeding is he going to do? Sometimes we are simply too capable for our own good. Um, we... God was saying, if, if you win with 32,000, you're going to say that you did it on your own. So sometimes we're just too capable. You don't know this about me, but I'm a pretty great singer. I mean, you heard it a minute ago. It's pretty great. In Kentucky, I'm called the Bluegrass Buble. Uh, I am that good. Now, um, I never pursued it because it only asked me to, uh, mostly. Um, have you ever watched the documentary about singers or, or actors or whatever? And they read, they, they, does this sound familiar? They became famous, they got money, they uh, became drug addled, and they died. Because you could paste that synopsis on lots of people, on the lives of lots of people. And here's what I know about me and who I am. I look back at my history and I think to myself, okay, well, you succumbed to temptation quite easily when you were young. I'm better now. I'm not perfect. But I know this. I have zero doubt that if I had been famous when I was 20 years old, I wouldn't be here today. I have no doubt about it. I I, I would have given in to that. I'm prone to that. I, in fact, when I look at athletes or, or uh, stars of any kind who are young and successful and, and still make it through life, I think to myself, man, they are made of something quite remarkable. So here, God protects his people from pride, and he's going to weed out some of his troops. So this, this is the instruction. 
He says to Gideon, now announce to the army anyone who trembles with fear. Remember, it was, by the way, uh, it was at the spring of Herod that this happens. The spring of Herod translated from the Hebrew is the spring of trembling. It's really kind of interesting. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, leaving 10,000. This sort of is, it's been a practice for the Jewish people. Back in Deuteronomy, uh, the officers uh, said, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened. What, what they knew was fear is infectious. Fear is infectious. Did you know that the people who are working on the Human Genome Project found something that they're calling the worry gene? I, I'm being serious. There's a worry gene. It is... SLC684 gene on chromosome 17Q12. And people who have a short version of this gene, they say are especially prone to worry. And right now you're worried, do I have SLC684? <laughs> because fear is infectious. And we worry about things. And so now you've gone from... 135,000 to 30, and, uh, uh, 32,000, 4 to 1. Now the odds are 135 to 1. Okay. There is no way they can win that. In fact, if Vegas was placing odds on this, it would be what? 10,000 to 1? I mean, I'm not a better, but I would think it'd be at least 10,000 to 1. Maybe more than that. And yet this is God's response to having 10,000 soldiers. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm like, dude, come on now. There are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. You're at 135 to 1. How much worse? You can't win that. How much worse can it be? Oh, I'm glad you asked. God sometimes weakens us to make us stronger. Life is a series of tests. Really important lesson. There are tests. You're taking them all the time. You thought when you graduated high school, you graduated college, tests are over. They're not over. Every day is this series of decisions that you make, and every one of them is a test. And so Gideon took them in down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees. You understand, right? Some of them uh, put their face in the water, and some of them cupped the water. And they lapped it like a dog. Now, there are some conjectures about this as well. What does that mean? I like one, but I'm not sure it's right. There, one of the, uh, one of the um, theories is they lapped like a dog, the cupped hand, and they're still being uh, aware. Because if my face is in the water, it's interesting we have water today. If my face is in the water, I can't see my peripheral at all. But if I lap then I can. Now, the only downside of that, and somebody pointed out, uh, one, of the, one of the guys I read pointed out that um, anytime in Scripture the word dog is used, it's never in the positive. We have sort of an affection for dogs, not so much in that culture. And so if you were called a dog, <laughs> it wasn't positive. It's always negative. 
This one scholar by the name of Doug Stewart said, it's most likely that the guys who cupped their hands were just nerds. He used the word nerd. <laughs> we have the Green Berets. Gideon had the revenge of the nerds. I mean, that's, that's who he's going into battle with, right? Now, if Vegas had odds on before, what would the odds be at 135,000 to 300? You're outnumbered 450 to 1. Would anybody want to go into that? I mean, the odds, if Vegas were setting a betting line, would be 10 million to 1? I mean, you have no prayer. Well, maybe all you have is a prayer. Because you will not win with 300 against 135,000. Look, I'm, I'm not much of a prognosticator, but I do know this. You don't win that. 300 versus 135,000, you're not winning. I, I don't know. you gotta be, you got to be something. Now, this happens in the Valley of Jezreel, which, by the way, also has another name. You may have heard of it, the Plain of Armageddon. You heard of that? This was happening in the perfect battlefield. It's like uh, the Bible tells us the end of the world happens at the, uh, the plain of Armageddon. So this, kinda, this is the perfect place. And this was a test. How they drank water was a test. Adrian Rogers is a pastor. He, he passed away a few years ago, but he pastored in Memphis for years and years and years. Very famous. And he tells a story. He knew a guy who was a CEO of a company in Birmingham, and they were interviewing a dude to become like the, the head sales manager or something, some big, kind of a big, big promotion. Uh, he was young. He was a, a rising star. And... Um, they were interviewing him, and he's the CEO, and he's on the committee that's interviewing him, and he has, he's just killing it in the interview. And they break for lunch, and then they're going to come back after lunch, and they're going to make a decision about whether they're going to hire him or not. But everybody in the room kind of had a pretty good vibe that this was the guy who was going to be the next head of sales. And they go to lunch, and it's at the cafeteria, and it's on the first floor, and it is... He's in the cafeteria line, and, and the CEO is in the cafeteria line right behind this young up-and-comer. And, and the CEO tells Adrian Rogers this story that he's watching this young man, and he gets to, you know how you, you get your, you know, your meat and your, your veggies or whatever, and then, then maybe you get a little piece of bread, and he got a little piece of bread, and he took a couple of pet, pats of butter, and he put them on his tray, and he put a napkin over it. Two pats of butter, 10 cents. And he got to the checkout line, and he intentionally didn't pay for those two little pats of butter, 10 cents. And the CEO watched that. And the kid <laughs> doesn't get the promotion. In fact, the CEO says if he'll steal two pats of butter, then he will steal anything. If you will do it, your character is what you do when nobody's looking. If you'll do it when nobody's looking, or at least you think nobody's looking, what will you do behind the scenes when you have lots of responsibility? A couple years ago, I was at Mutt's, you know, the barbecue place, and I had eaten, and I left, and I got back to church, and all of a sudden I realized, you know, I didn't leave a tip. I didn't leave a tip. And, and I'm a pastor 
and I represent you. I thought to myself, man, if that young lady knew who I was, and I don't know that she did, but I don't know that she didn't, what would she think? She would think you all are a bunch of cheapskates because I represent you. And so I went back. I found her. I apologized. I gave her the money. It was like $10 or $15. It wasn't much money. I gave her the money. I invited her to church. Everything is a test. There are tests every day that we, we, we just go through these little tests. What I look at, what's a test? What I read, it's a test. What I say, test. Where I spend my time, test. Who I spend my time with, it's a test. What I do, it's a test. Everything is a test. Life is a series of tests. And so God uses this one particular test, and he gets the team down to 300, and now the story gets crazy. It was crazy before. It's crazier now. And the Bible tells us, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion. We have to be aware. Lesson number three. God can do a lot with a little. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed... (laughs) Gideon is the leader of an elite force. Here are the weapons of choice of Gideon. He placed trumpets an empty jar into the hands of all of them with a torch inside. All right, at this point, if you're one of the 300, aren't you going, man, I wonder if I can join those 31,700 that went home because this is whack. This is, the most, this is the most unbelievable war strategy in the history of war. And Gideon says, watch me, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly what I do. This makes zero sense. Then all three groups blew their horns, broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands. And they all shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. This happens at about midnight. There's been a, um, a guard change. There are some guards awake, but the vast majority of the army at midnight would be asleep. If you're ever startled awake, are you as clear as when you've been up for a while? Of course not. You're just not. So if something happens, and like the other day, my fire alarm went off at four, well, even better. This morning, at 4.58, I received a text from Wayfair They're so nice to let me know that my package is on the way uh, at 4.58. If I could have found my phone, I would have thrown my phone. I mean, it's like, so uh, sometimes you're startled awake. All right, so this happens at midnight. And in war, at that time, in that century, in that era, when you went to war, you had one trumpeter, one bugler for every thousand men. Do the math, right? Do the math. 
So I'm startled awake, and I hear 300 horns, which would say to me, that army out there is vast. And then they break the pots, and that sounds like the clanking of armor. And then I look out, and there are torches. And again, sort of the ratio of torchbearers to soldiers was about five, six, seven hundred to one. So I look at these torches, and if every torch represents 700, 800, 1,000 people, I am vastly outnumbered. And when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other. They're confused. In common parlance, this would be friendly fire. They begin to attack one another. And those who were not killed fled to places far away. And theirs was this amazing victory. 450 to 1. Astronomical odds. And yet God delivers His people in the most amazing way. And I wish this was the end of the story because this is a great story if it ended here. And it doesn't end here and I hate that I have to tell you the rest of it. Because how many times do we see in Scripture somebody starts out so strong and yet at the end they just really blow it? Noah. Noah, man, he, he was like the only one. He was the chosen one. He literally was the only one left who worshipped God. And he and his family saved the human race. And he gets off the boat. And he gets drunk and naked, exposes himself, brings a curse on his family. You got a guy named Saul. Saul was also a reluctant leader, and God picks him to be the leader, the, the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, Saul. And he's tall, dark, and handsome, and, and he's, he's the guy that, that God chooses, and he, he works himself sort of into, he's like an introvert's introverts. I love that guy. And, and yet he, he works himself into being a king, and then all of a sudden he gets paranoid. He's paranoid of a guy named David. And he becomes jealous and murderous. And he dies by his own hand. He starts out so strong. And you have David. David had a son named Solomon. And Solomon was, was stupid smart. <laughs> Oxymoron. He was really, really smart. And the Bible says he was the wisest man who ever lived. And there you have Solomon. And he's doing great things. And he's making great decisions. And people from all over the world, all over the planet, are coming to see him. And yet, at the end of his life... The Bible says that his foreign wives turned his heart from God. Look, nobody makes you do anything. That's, that's, on, that's on Solomon. And here you have Gideon. And he has just won the most improbable victory in the history of the world. And then look at what happens next. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. 
And then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your sons and your grandsons will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I've not, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. This is super good. Again, I wish we could end the story right here. I mean, he is doing great things. Remember when the Americans, you don't remember this, but when the Americans won the Revolutionary War, there were many who said, uh, George Washington, you be our king. And he's like, no, I don't want to be your king. And this is exactly what happens with Gideon. Be our king. No, I don't want to be your king. And then the next verse is, in fact, the next word changes everything. The next word (laughs) will change your life. However, (laughs) I've got some howevers in my life. He was doing so good. He was, you know, doing great. However, he was doing great until he wasn't. (laughs) He was awesome until he wasn't. Gideon was killing it. However, and I'm going to venture to guess that most, if not all of us, have some howevers in our lives. We were doing good. We were sensing God. We were experiencing God. We were close to God. However, don't you wish the victory in your life lasted? It continued, never stopped. Well, it doesn't sometimes. However, I do have one request, he says, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from the fallen enemies. To the victor goes the spoils. This army that was defeated, they had earrings. They took those earrings as plunder. They gave Gideon 43 pounds of gold that day. On the current market at about $2,000 an ounce, that's $1.4 million. Some of you are going to get your calculator out right now. Uh, I checked it three times. You can check it later, but stay with me. I've got about two minutes left, so we don't need to do that. So look at what he does with this gold. Again, no problem. You, You got some spoils of war. Great. Good for you, Jack. Except, except... Gideon made a sacred ephod, and I always thought an ephod was like a little statue, you know, like a statue of a bottle of water. Uh, I always thought it was a statue of some sort. Well, an ephod is actually like an apron. And so it's this garment that he made out of gold that was used by the Jews in the act of worship. And the Jewish place to worship was Shiloh, and it's way over there. And... He's way down here. And so Gideon was basically saying, God gave us the victory. Now we're going to worship him the way we want to worship him. I'm going to worship him the way I want to. And so he makes this ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his entire family. Somebody one time said... um, The problem with being a self-made man is that the man begins to worship his maker. And here you have Gideon, and he has this amazing success. And all of a sudden, because of his success, he forgets God. One more really super interesting thing. 
Gideon had a son. His name was Abimelech. Abimelech means in Hebrew, my father is the king. <laughs> I don't want to be your king, but I want to name my kid. I'm the king. You know, uh, it's like, okay, I'm not prideful, but I'm going to be prideful. And in today's lesson, there were four things we talked about. I don't know if you needed any of it, or maybe you needed all of it. But it's really, really important to remember that sometimes God weakens us to make us stronger. We, we need it. Sometimes he needs to do this. He tests us every day. Not so that we would fail, but th- so we would succeed. He can do a lot with a little. Many of us are evidence of that. And it's not how you start, it's how you finish. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Let's pray. Father, it is a good day to look in your word. Thank you for the life of Gideon. We can learn from other people's mistakes. We can learn from their successes. We're thankful for opening, that you opened up our eyes to these things today. Help us to apply them. Thank you for the challenge. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.